Hi, welcome to another uh, episode of At the Table. We are talking about uh, the covenant prayer in the Wesley tradition. And um, I have today, uh, the line we're going to talk about is, let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. It's my observation that when I pray this with the group, uh, that everybody says, let me be employed by thee really loud. And then it, it kind of gets quiet as people say, or laid aside for thee. And then it gets louder, exalted for thee, and then softer or brought low for thee. Uh, none of us really want to be brought low or laid aside or not in a public kind of, I, I don't know. It seems to me our culture today, uh, understanding of preachers goes to like megachurch preachers or preachers with large scale uh flocks and really most preachers have a small community of faith that they faithfully tend to so anyhow as i was thinking about this i thought who could speak to this well and i didn't have to look very far uh, alan johnson is my husband he is an ordained elder in the florida conference on loan to north georgia and uh, on staff at john's creek united methodist but i asked him to speak to this because alan uh, was caught up in my election and he's always been very supportive, but the reality of that was I came to a place where I had a ton to do. I had immediate, I, I hit the ground running. I had people all around uh, welcoming me and supporting me. And he came and we had a daughter who was, how old was Sam then, Alan? 14, 15? Sophomore in high school. Sophomore, Sophomore. in high school. And uh, so Alan and Samantha were thrown into North Georgia pretty immediately without a structured life, and Sam had to get to school, and, and she can tell her own story someday on how hard that was, but Alan uh, took a leave of absence, and Alan, you were on leave from September of September 1st of 2016 to July of 2017, right? That period of time. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and he had to figure out what to do, how to reorder his life, and uh, I think he's done a marvelous job, and I wanted to, and really when you talk about being laid aside or having to reconfigure your life and how God can work in that, I wanted Alan to speak to that. So Alan, tell us, tell us what you did with that time. Well, I was brought low um, <laughs> because I had to deal with a 15 year old and there's nothing like a riding in a car with a 15 year old um, back and forth every day to, to, to bring you low. Um, but no, it was seriously, um, I drove Samantha back and forth um, four times a day, uh, for the first year. And that was pretty much my life. Um, yeah, well, I'll let's jump. explain that. Let me, let me out. Uh, Samantha, um, had started an, an IB international baccalaureate program in eighth grade. And the only place in Georgia around us that would continue that was at Riverwood high school in Sandy Springs. So, um, that's with traffic. It didn't look like that much mileage when we were in Florida looking at it. But the reality was it was about an hour drive each way. And so that was, Alan spent time doing that. So I just wanted to clarify that, Alan. It's not just like you ran her up to school. No, no. Um, as you know, the year that I took off was, was probably the hardest year of my life, um, but also one of the most productive. And what I mean by the hardest, I, I realized after a few months um, and after we got moved in, that um, I, I not having something to do was a problem for me. Uh, even when we used to go on vacations, you know, after a couple of three days, mm -hmm. I was bored, restless, whatever you want to call it. So the first thing I had to do was look hard 
into why do I have such a hard time um, doing nothing? Um, and that was very insightful. Um, I don't want to go through all, all the bloody details, but um, the other thing that happened simultaneously, and it was serendipitous because when we left uh, Florida, a lot of our friends who were all female, for when I think about it, gave me these books on the mystics. Uh, Richard Rohr, Thomas Merton, Mother Teresa was the name of few. And um, from day one on, on my day off, my time off, I started reading um, the mystics and um, really found a home in their writings all the way to the point now to where I have a pretty good library on Merton and Richard Rohr um, and then some bits and pieces of a lot of other people. But um, it has led me to the point of um, we got to meet Richard Rohr with our with our ACE group of applying to the living school out at the uh, out in New Mexico. So um, on, on one hand, a part of me was um, dying, and on the other, uh, part of me was being reborn um, through through the work of the these people. Um, where it goes, I don't know, but. Um, what I, what I learned was having nothing to do. Um, the monks used to say, you just have to go into a, a empty cave and stare into nothingness. Um, and in, in that abyss is where we find God. So um, while it was extremely difficult to have nothing to do and many thanks to Thomas Merton and say, uh, Thomas, Tom, Thomas Martin at um, Sandy Springs United Methodist, who let me dig around in their garden and uh, put together a, a clean out his library. Um, but having nothing to do um, was an extremely difficult time. And I realized um, a lot of it had to do with, I need something to do to feel good about myself. Um, I was over identifying uh, with, with my work. And I'll be honest with you, Sue, I look back now at the 24 years prior um, in the church and doing ministry. Um, and I, ha I also have to admit much of what I feel like I was doing was based on vanity mm. and pride. Um, I don't see, um, the ministry like I, I once did. I, I lament over <clears throat> the way I approached it. Uh, the first part of my life, the first 25 years of my of ministry, um, you can you can sugarcoat it. You can try to justify it, uh, but what it boiled boiled down to was simply pride. Um, mm. And you know how big a church was I going to be in? How effective was that church? And even though I had good intentions, what the mystics have taught me is uh, it's all about dying to self mm. and and letting go and letting Christ uh, live in you and work through you. That's what I pray every morning when I get up now, um, instead of trying to have an agenda. Uh, but I'll be, I'll be honest with you. I look back at a lot of things I did and a lot of the people that I admired in my first part of my career. And I just say vanity of all vanities. And, and I, I don't want to go back there, but it's so easy to go back there when you hit the mm -hmm. church and you get busy and you want to change things, you know, you just fall right back in those same patterns. But, I did a lot of also personal work on um, going all the way back to my um, ordained board of ordained ministry work and psychological assessments. And I realized all oh, it was there all along hmm. uh, the seeds of this were there all along. 
um, and how I'm wired in my personality, which has been a whole nother, um, a whole nother chapter of, um, like, I think it was Ignatius that said, why do we do what we do? Mm. And I had to ask myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? And once in a while, it might've been for God's glory, but I, I fear a lot of it wasn't. Mm. Um, how has it changed now that you're back in the local church after the year off? How does it change your understanding of ministry and, um, how, how do you do it differently now? Well, like, like I said, I try to approach each day um, by having just quiet time in the morning and do nothing, absolutely nothing, not rush off. The, uh, I don't even read the Bible like I once did. I, I, um, you know, I used to read it to write a sermon. But now I just spend some time with it and asking God to, um, to, to meet me in it and to be present throughout the day. And again, um, and I think it was Roar that said this, you, you, um, it's about Christ living in you and working through you. That's how I approach it now. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think um, the first Richard Rohr book, and that's spelled R-O-H-R, for those of you who aren't familiar with Richard Rohr, uh, who is a kind of a modern mystic contemplative. Uh, but he wrote a great book called Falling Upward that really changed my life. And he points out that the first half of our lives, we are um, egocentric, right? That we are operating out of our own needs. We want to pursue careers. We want to pursue our own personal advantage. And he said that's entirely normal. That's what we do. But that at some point you need to come to yourself and move into a deeper state of spiritual maturity where you think about your legacy and how what you've learned about your life in its first half, in the second half, you um, serve others and you invest in generations to come and you uh, really um, set the table and plan for those generations coming after, which is very compelling to me. And, but he points out that uh, you usually have to have some uh, abrupt kind of, um, for most people, let's face it, it's either the death of a loved one or a personal illness or something that really jolts you out of your reality so that you have to recreate yourself. And I think that that year jolted you. And I, and he says, if you don't have something that jolts you like that, you have to have the, the spiritual maturity to jolt yourself, which I've tried to do just by trying to say, um, this whole culture of achievement and careerism and climbing a ladder, which really failed me in my first career as a lawyer, because I got way caught up in that and realized that the, I wasn't going up the ladder I even wanted to be on. But I think that um, that's what we've got to teach uh, fellow Christians clergy or lay, that um, at some point, this isn't about you, right? I, I, I keep saying that we've lost a culture of we, we've lost a culture. And, and, uh, you know, you can speak to this better than I, cause y'all have been struggling with in-person worship or not. But I think a lot of the consternation about gathering for in-person worship is a lot of folks don't realize how much the spiritual life is forged in your own personal reflection time in um, your own study in your own quiet and that's the whole heart of contemplation so uh, for me and for you this time of pandemic has been a great time 
for contemplation. I love not having to fly all over the world and have some time to really center myself spiritually. And I think the pace of our life um, runs counter to spiritual development. So talk to me about that. Um, and, and really, when you look at all the, um, the key biblical figures, the common thread is leave everything totally new. They are completely shaken up. And I don't think anything shakes the disciples up more than the resurrection, right? So how, how are we shaken up and how do we shake ourselves up so we don't get caught up in the, in the climbing and the relentless pursuit of self? Well, I often think of the story of um, the rich young ruler mm. and some gospels um, paint him in a little more positive picture. Um, but he, he really comes with good intentions and really wants to do the right thing. And Christ said, you really want to do the right thing, then leave all you got. And that was um, a lesson I learned, started learning along the way. Um, I want to be busy for you. Leave it. Mm. I, I, wrote, I really want to, you know, produce and have a, a vital church. Leave it. And it's grueling. Uh, it's confusing. Um, to say, okay, I'm just going to let go of everything I'm hanging on to. Mm. I went over to Africa a couple of times to the, the mission center there in, um, in Zambia with, with Delbert and Sandy Groves. And, of course, what they got going on over there is remarkable, top to bottom. Um, church starts, orphanages, uh, they got, it's just a wonderful experience. And so um, when I had some, some time with Delbert, I basically said, how did all this happen? He said, Alan, I get up every day. And we just say, um, you know, today is, is yours, God. Mm -hmm. Do with it what you want. Make of it what you want. Um, put me with who you want. And it was remarkable um, what the Spirit of God had done in that mm -hmm. context. Um, so it's a hard lesson, but to... Um, to leave everything you once counted on. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a very thinking person. My dad's a professor. I grew up in an academic environment where, where study was extremely important. Um, and it comes a time to where you have to just say, you know what? Um, I'm going to have to just get new wineskins mm -hmm. and learn a different way. Um, so um, another experience that happened in this time was um, we were doing a devotional on um, John the Baptist's disciples leaving John the Baptist and going with Christ. And what I heard in that story was John the Baptist's disciples said, hey, we've been with John the Baptist. This is comfortable. This is familiar with us. We know this. Mm -hmm. uh, and here's this new teacher. And they say, where are you staying at? And he says, come and see. And, and they say, but the hour is late. And he says, come and see. Uh, I realized the church and the ministry, uh, as I had once done it, was very familiar, very comfortable. Um, but something was calling me as somewhere new. And I said, it's late. I'm 60 years old. It's kind of late. Start something new. <laughs> and Christ said, come and see. And mm -hmm. it is stepping out into nothingness. Um, as the mystics say, the darkness is a blessing. Mm. to step out into into a, a new place and leave all that you once knew mm -hmm. um, and just go out and trust. I mean, that's what we're, we're saying over and over again is stepping out into uh, complete trust, which yeah. I have uh, issues with, I guess. 
Yeah. Well, I know um, after I, you know, I was so established in law, my parents were really annoyed that I was going to seminary because they felt like I had, you know, I was settled. I had a good income. I was, you know, all set by the world standards. And I remember um, just stepping blindly into going to seminary and um, what a great um, shift that was. What, you know, I finally felt like I was um, on the track prepared for me by God. And I think that um, once you do that, it's easier. You still forget, but I think that once you do that, I mean, I don't think you'll ever be that concerned about um, security again, will you? I think that there's a sense of you just step out and, and once you've done it, it gets easier every time, but boy, that first step is often the hardest. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the old joke of the, the millionaire who wanted to, to, to build a real secure castle so he built a moat around him. He offered a million dollars to anybody who could swim the moat and get to the castle. He wanted to see if it was secure. So he filled mm-hmm. the moat with alligators and crocodiles and sharks, make up whatever he wants, <laughs> um, bulldogs, if that helps. But anyway, so no, nobody could ever do this and, until finally one day a guy came and was surveying it and all of a sudden hit the water, uh, swimming hard as he could, and he gets across to the other side and the king says, well, you made it, you know, uh, I'm going to give you the million dollars. What are you going to do with it? And the guy said, the first thing I'm going to do is find out who pushed me in. Uh, <laughs> sometimes you just get pushed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you go to swimming like heck um, and dealing with the situation. I, I got pushed in. Mm. Um, it was like Nancy Graves, Bishop um, Graves' um, wife said, the day after you got elected, we had all the spouses met. And Nancy said, well, I went to bed in my bed and I woke up on Mars. Um, (laughs) So that's how it felt. I mean, one minute Mm -hmm. I'm in my home state near my hometown in a wonderful church with a staff of 14. I'm the senior pastor, as y'all like to say, or lead pastor. But we had built a family with our with our staff. Um, This church had a wonderful ministry of the homeless. And I'm thinking, man, I'm done. You know, I can ride this thing out till I retire and then, you know, um, then I can be a consultant or something. But no, I, you know, it was um, it was wonderful. And then the next day I woke up in a strange place. Not that the, the people in Atlanta hadn't been wonderful to us, but um, in a strange uh, context, as you know, Sue, we talked about, I, I would not take an appointment in this conference that might bump somebody else out. Right. Um, and, you know, both appointments I've had up here, they've come to me and said, we have a hole that we need mm-hmm. to fill. Um, so that was difficult walking away from all that I had built 25 years in Florida um, and a lot of friendships, a lot of relationships. You know, mm-hmm. once you, you know, relate, you know, the connectional system is kind of like compounded interest. Everywhere you go and every district you're in and every committee you're on, you use compound relationships and, and it pays off. Um, and just in a lot of, a lot of rich relationships uh, over the years, all that mm-hmm. was gone. I had to start over and um, folks have been, been real good to me here, but in this appointment that I'm in now, I haven't been an associate in a, in a large church since 1993. Um, when I came out mm-hmm. of Canada. Yeah. Um, so 
it's it's teaching a real old dog new tricks. Um, mm-hmm. And the ministry has changed quite a bit um, since I started. Um, preaching is is not what it, it, it was in, in the '90s, you know, when I came out. So uh, a lot of changes, a lot of things going on. And um, with all, uh, we're we're so dependent upon technology and 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 the mm-hmm. social media right now that you know I don't know how to work a toaster oven. Uh, so this has all been something new um, to try to learn. Well, I know um, one thing that both of us take seriously is uh, investing in the lives of younger clergy and laity and really um, uh, learning from them. I mean, I laugh. People say, well, you mentor a lot of folks. I'm like, no, I I learn more from them than they do from me. And uh, I really have decided um, that I will increasingly spend most of my time with people um, who have a lot of time left in the church. You know, I'm amazed. I can't wait. I can't wait till I'm 80 years old. (laughs) And I hope when I'm 80 years old, I'm sitting in a worship service where I hate everything, but that it's filled with young people and children. Right. I I don't get that. I don't get, I don't get the, um, uh, you know, I just think it's time to pass this on. And I really can't wait to hand it over to folks with a lot more creativity and energy and and insight uh, than I have. And so I think a lot of the joy of falling upward is to realize that um, a lot of, you know, it's weird. Uh, People think that the life of a superintendent or a bishop is so public, but it really isn't. I mean, you don't have a community of faith that you lead like a church. Um, You aren't well. I mean, I can a lot of times I could walk into a lot of churches in North Georgia and not be recognized, especially with a mask on. Right. But um, that a lot of our work is behind the scenes and with uh, with younger people equipping and encouraging and pushing forward and trying to, I mean, my whole goal now is to have something uh, worthwhile for them to serve in for the balance of their ministry. So I think that, um, you know, you look at Jesus's greatest role was to invest in the lives of his disciples. And he spent most of his time doing that. And you do that well. I mean, you, you and I, we've always mentored clergy. We've always had candidates for ministry. We've always worked with youth and young adults in, in churches. So what's your sense of um, your purpose over the next, you know, 10 years? Well, I'll tell you what I, what I hope for, but there I'm breaking the rule of that I just stated, you know, this, mm-hmm. it's, it's my pride. It's my idea. It's what I want. It's what I think. Um, and, and, you know, somebody had said 10 years ago, you're going to be married to a bishop. I'd be like, <laughs> what? You know, this I is not something I planned on. <laughs> yeah, well, um, so who can say? Um, I'd much rather just say I'm going to be available to whatever comes down. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's a mystery. And I don't want to be honest with you, uh, but what I what I have learned and what I'd like to see, I feel like at least in my um, little circle of uh, the churches that I grew up in, and, and I just don't think we're doing much spiritual formation for people. Mm. We're not training people, right? Um, I would I would I would love to. And what does that mean? Uh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've applied to the living school with Richard Rohr, for instance, that's, that's my, um, that's the poison I picked. 
But um, <laughs> what I would love to see happen is start training, especially clergy, but also laity leadership in spiritual formation. I know we were in a church and we did um, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby's, and we also did Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little outside the norm of Methodism, but still a lot of good stuff. And an older lady in her 80s said, Alan, we just didn't know this existed. Mm-hmm. And I said, Virginia, you're right. We, we've not taught this. We don't teach no. the Psalms. I mean, um, yeah. I think of St. Benedictine said, read every Psalm every day. And we don't read a Psalm a week, do we? Um, so I just think that's where we drop the ball. Yeah. Um well, I think we've lost the interior life and the, I, I don't know, the word I always go back to is integrity. That it, there should be seamlessness between your spiritual life and, and, and how you live and how you treat the people around you and how you reflect. I mean, you know, if we're to help usher in uh, the reign of God, if we're supposed to have live in a different way, we just haven't seen that modeled well. And I think what we have seen is the danger of, climbing a ladder or careerism or this kind of large and in charge mentality. I mean, you know, um, I know throughout our ministry, our peers idolized Bill Hybels. And I, if you haven't read the assessment of the firm that was called in to look at the culture of Willow Creek, what they found was a culture where his power and authority had run rampant um, you know, misuse of power, misuse of women, misuse of, and, and just, he lost himself in the, I think, I think he started in a good place, but he lost himself. I mean, you look at Jerry Falwell Jr., the list is very long. Um, the one who addresses it the best is Gordon McDonald, who wrote Ordering Your Private World. I'd recommend that book to anybody, but Gordon McDonald uh, had an affair and really had reflect on where he'd gone wrong and what his life had gone. And he says, man, 38 is a dangerous age for a lot of men because I think that's either where you fall upward or you mess up bad. But we do, I remember I used to get on Monday mornings, it was an evangelical newsletter called Monday Morning Insight. And it had some great stuff. But I remember the headline one week was, would you still do ministry if nobody, uh, you know, nobody, over five miles away from your church ever heard your name. And I was like, seriously, is that, is that what somebody fears? And it really was the constant push that, uh, and the unspoken thing with a lot of those was, you know, if you don't have a huge church, if you aren't lighting it up, then you really, something's wrong with you, that you aren't spiritually deep or you aren't following God or you aren't. And I just think that, um, a lot of folks are getting separated um, from their, there's no integrity where your spiritual life doesn't inform every aspect of your life. And a lot of these folks compartmentalize and it's not just men, women do it too, but the compartmentalization where I, I am, you know, master pastor in the pulpit, but I'm also having an affair or mistreating my staff or creating a hostile workplace or, you know, um, really lost. And I think that's a danger. Sue, I know um, the beginning of the beginning of this whole thing started, you know, we had an SBRC chair that we love, Damon Furbosch. And Mm -hmm. Damon had told us, he said, look, I'm not really a church guy. 
uh, I'm just doing this because of my wife. Well, he, he <laughs> became the SPRC chair and he was as big as I am and he loved to eat. So we would all go get barbecue in Cape, in Cape Coral quite often and just talk. Great guy. I love talking to him, watch the Gator games with him. And right before we left Cape Coral, I said, Damon, you know, you've been a good friend. Before I go off and mess up another church, let me know what is it that I do uh, well? What is it I need to improve upon before I strike out of here and start over? I love that about the itinerary system. You can you know, reimagine yourself for four or five mm-hmm. years. And, and I thought Damien would say, oh, I really appreciate what y'all have done in the church because we had renovated and hired a bunch of staff. And he said, I really was thinking maybe he'd say, oh, your sermons have met the world in me. You know what he said? Eating barbecue with me. Mm. He said, the time you spent, that y'all spent just with me watching ball games and eating barbecue. And this, this is a guy who was unchurched by his own admission. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years after we left, can you tell this? Yeah, he, he, um, he called, I, I mean, he really um, gave his life over completely to Christ. I mean, it was a miraculous thing to see and um, really was totally transformed in, and in kind of a mystical experience, Alan, I think he, you know, uh, and I do think that um, we've got to reinvest, you know, go back to Jesus's ministry. Jesus was constantly constantly investing in the lives of others. That was, that was his, that's the secret sauce. It's not, you know, large and in charge. He didn't spend his time, all of his time, his key time was spent with his disciples. And I still remember uh, when I became a DS, I asked Ed Tomlinson, you know, Ed, Ed, Ed had been a DS longer than anybody had ever known. I said, what's your, what, what advice would you have? He said, have breakfast with your pastors. Just have breakfast with your pastors, get to know them, find out about their ministries, learn about their lives and families, and um, you'll be effective. And then I said, okay, what else do I need to know? And he kind of got mad. He said, I just told you, have breakfast with your pastors. But that was the, that's the heart of it, that you invest. I mean, um, I, I think that incarnation means incarnation that you are physically and emotionally and spiritually present with other people. And I look back on my ministry and the time, you know, the times where I think that, uh, I don't know, I don't think effect is even the word, but where was I having an impact? I think back to my young adult group and my very first appointment. And those folks are all still in the church. Their children are still in the church. Most of them are looking for grandchildren now. But that's where the impact is in the in the relational, in the um, in the doubt, in the hashing out the life of faith, in reading together. And I, I, I wish folks would quit, you know, writing me about going back to in-person worship and just find three other people and read the Bible with them and talk about it and watch something together or do something. I mean, I'm so tired of this one dimensional spiritual life that we're seeing. I, I think it, it's testimony that the church has, has not led people well, that they're so upset that worship is not available to them because, you know, there, there are huge, uh, our, we have a lot in our spiritual toolkit that doesn't involve public worship. Right. So, um, any thoughts on that? I think that that's a huge issue right now. I just yeah, don't think one, people One thing grow. we're trying at, at Johns Creek, as Charlie says, um, Charlie Reeve, we have to learn how to homeschool discipleship ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. 
um, and is trying to get out. So I, I would love to see a time to where much of the Christian discipleship uh, was being done outside the church and not just between 11 and 12 on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. The other night I was watching um, St. Francis of Assisi again. I love his story, but and it's a it, it's it's a really poor production of it. I think I love the scene where he and his and the newly found order, his brothers, they're working to rebuild a church, and the canon in his robes. You know, the representative of the Pope comes to see him, and uh, and says, you know, you know, the church is not happy. They haven't sanctioned your order, and and he says, well, I just need to go to Rome and get that done, and and um, he says to the canon, will you help me? And the canon says, yes. But then he says, but I want to join you. And he takes off his robes and he joins. And then the next scene is he's in the simple garb of the Franciscans walking with them. That There is a sense of, you know, it's not about achievement or lofty grandeur or pomp and circumstance. Or uh, it's about getting back to the heart of the matter, which is finding those who are deeply in love with Christ adding your witness to there and then seeing where the Holy Spirit calls you to work. And we've made it so hard and complicated and our American culture, I think has polluted it so much. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it, it's difficult as a human being, especially, you know, I did the Enneagram and, and realized I'm wired to, uh, to expect a lot and try to do a lot. Um, and that's out of my own need and not out of a God centeredness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, um, I think so much about that the movie, the, the Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. I forget the guy's name, but the runner. They asked him why he ran. He said, "I just feel God's pleasure when I run." Mm-hmm. Uh, it's getting back to saying, "Why do you do this?" I just feel God's pleasure. Um, I feel well, God's I presence. Th- yeah, and I think that um, if we ever had an indicator that we're on the wrong track, is so many of our lives don't have joy. Right. I mean, that he felt God's presence. He felt joy in running. He felt. And and so, um, you know, clergy and lady, both if your life is not and I'm not talking about the raw rod, but but a deep sense of fulfillment and joy and that, you know, enjoying the gifts that God's given and living out a life in relationship if that's not there, I think the call is to the contemplative life. You've got to figure out um, what's amiss, what's not in alignment, where's there a lack of integrity, and that, and what better time than a pandemic, right? What better time, <laughs> you know, I, if ever you were going to be a contemplative, um, I think this is a good time, but uh, we've got to reclaim that for the church. We've, we've, we've missed out. And, you know, I think we're seeing the lack of the fruit of the spirit, right? Um, I was watching a great devotional the other day by one of my friends and uh, she was doing a devotional for her church. And she said, you know, how do I figure out if I'm on the right track or following Christ? Am I loving, joyful, peaceful, peaceful, patient, gentle, kind, generous, self-controlled. I think I left out one, but that's the hallmark. And I just don't see many people with those qualities wandering around or speaking into the public realm very much these days. So I'm looking for that. And and you know this, um, sometimes the the cabinet works against that. How many times did we say, give me a small church? They said, no, 
you're going right. to do a big one. How many times yeah. do we say, yeah. oh, you know, we used to go, you know, go do a new church start. And I said, I don't know nothing about doing a new church start. Right. When we got married, what did they say? Well, this is, this is problematic. Instead of saying, well, what is God planning on doing with the two of you? Uh, you know, sometimes they, they steer you right into that pro mm -hmm. produce, produce, produce. Yeah. Believe me, I, I, in our daily lives, we're trying to work against that culture, but it is so hard. Uh, well, we saw that when we were traveling in England and uh, at Wesley's church, the uh, priest there uh, said he was going to Medlin and was talking about how in Great Britain, uh, all Methodist clergy are paid the same amount. And boy, at lunch, it was the DSs. We weren't DS. I wasn't a DS at the time, but the per people on the trip who were DSs were like, well, that would never work in the United States because, you know, you got to pay big church pastors more. And I was like, well, you dismiss it really quickly. But yeah, I mean, part of part of what we face every day is how is how is our culture, common culture, how are we falling into it? How are we trapped by it? And so that is that is a constant, constant well, cabinet conversation. Well, and so in staying with that trip to England, you know, they took us a tour of the great cathedrals and all the artwork um, yeah. and gave us the history of that. And a layperson on that trip, Scott Pendergrass, said, Alan, where do you see the glory of God in these great cathedrals? Because all I'm seeing is mm -hmm. Hubers. How many yeah. sanctuaries have we overbuilt because of Hubers? Oh, How yeah. Many? Now you're really going, you know, now you're going to get me kicked out. But true. I mean, the, uh, the debt, the huge buildings, the, you know, yeah. Uh, well, and we know clergy from Florida who, um, you know, they, they had not achieved at a church until they built something. And so they went from one appointment building something to the next because that was how they generated excitement in the congregation and put their name and their imprint on a, on a church. But I'd much rather be remembered for my spiritual formation and development than a building, which, you know, what we're seeing in 50 years will be a huge liability to any group, right? Because now a lot of churches are struggling just to maintain a huge edifice. So, yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, and, and every time you begin to talk about this, you have to call yourself up short because we all fall into it. But at least we can develop an awareness and at least we can have some honest conversation and, and I think that's why we can go back to Wesley's covenant prayer, right? I'm going to read this one more time uh, because this is the heart of it. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. And, um, and I guess, you know, at the heart of the spiritual faith is you have to be brought low to really have a sense of who you are and how much, how dependent on Christ you are. So I thank you, Alan, for the conversation. I thank you for being faithful partner and uh, great dad and just, you know, um, support and putting up with a lot. And um, I think that uh, we both learned a lot in the last four years. And um, I think that uh, both of us now are really much more open to whatever God has in store for us. So, well, so let me say this and I'll, I'll go because the NFL uh -huh. game's coming on, but um, <laughs> this whole journey started for me years ago when I was doing a word search on the verb to know, and I can't quote the source, but it said in the West, they interpreted the verb to know, to master something. 
Uh, I have knowledge of mathematics because I've mastered mathematical skills. Uh, think about it and how the West has interpreted what we call knowledge, mm -hmm. conquering, achieving, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. But in the East, the Eastern church in interpreted it uh, to know, to be in relationship with, mm -hmm. to be in relationship yeah. with. That's where a lot of the feminine ideas of the Holy Spirit um, mm -hmm. I read St. Teresa of Avila, a whole nother mm. experience. Um, but the short of it is to know, to know God is to be in relationship with and not based on accomplishment. Yeah. And to know, to know other, and I think you've hit the heart of it because uh, where folks get awry is when they see ministry as mastering others. I mean, you, you know, go back to some of the the real heroes that we thought were heroes who were not. They got caught up in the mastering. They got caught up in their own egos and their own agendas, and they lost sight of the relational. And so um, I think it's a call back to, uh, to the heart of the matter and to really focus on uh, how do we get to, you know, I, I, I say a million times a day, um, it's not that hard. If you read the book of Acts, it's all about one person telling another person about Jesus and the acts of God in their lives. And that at its, at its core, at its most essential is what we do. And when we lose that in our own ideas of glory, in our own ideas of ego and achievement, we pollute it. And we see that. I mean, that's, I mean, that's why, that's why Jesus was constantly at war with the Pharisees, right? They they had the law, they kept the rules, they were pure, they were holy, and Jesus, you know, didn't win a lot of brownie points with them when he said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. And that's always the danger, right? So anyhow, well, thank you. I, we probably should close out. We could go on and on and on, but I appreciate it and um, rock on. At the Table is produced by Sybil Davison and edited by Kim Drobes. Music is by Chuck Bell. Thank you, and I look forward to the next time we are together.